following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw, for our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Isaiah 52:13 to 53 verse 12 See my servant will act wisely he will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted just as there were many who were appalled at him his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any man and his form marred beyond human likeness so will he sprinkle many nations and kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were not told, they will see, and what they have not heard, they will understand. Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before like a tender shoot, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering, like one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced from for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is silent. So he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was stricken. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth, yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days and will... And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied by his knowledge. My righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Yeah, great job, Fafita. Gee, that was a long reading. Well done. Fantastic job. I wanted, I wanted us to read, I wanted us, Fafita, to read that, that whole passage because I just wanted us to feel the weight of that, not just pick a couple of verses out of it, but really just feel the weight of what Isaiah is saying. Uh, let me start with a quote by the infamous atheist, Richard Dawkins. He says this, It is a horrible idea that God, this paragon of wisdom and knowledge and power, couldn't think of a better way to forgive us our sins than to come down to earth in his alter ego as his son 
and have himself hideously tortured and executed so that he could forgive himself. That's uh, Richard Dawkins' take on the, uh, on the idea of God sending Jesus to earth to die for our sins. In his mind, it's absolutely ridiculous that that would happen, that God would do that, not that he believes in God anyway, but the idea that a deity would send his own son to earth to die, to forgive our sins. It's ridiculous. It's ludicrous. It makes God look weak and, and, and cruel and barbaric. And you end up with this weird contradiction of God punishing God so he could forgive us or forgive himself. And for Dawkins, it makes no sense. Now, I don't, I don't read that because I think Dawkins is a particularly heavyweight thinker. Um, even, even a lot of atheists don't have a huge amount of time for Dawkins. There's not a huge amount of substance to his arguments. But I, re- I, I read that because I think it gets you thinking about what the death of Jesus did accomplish. Right? I read it because it should raise a few questions for you about what you do believe. If you don't believe that, then what do you believe about what the death of Jesus accomplished? Just wrestle with that question in your own mind for a minute. Why did Jesus have to die? And you might, you might think you know and you've got an answer there and maybe something you learned in Sunday school, but just think about that. Why did Jesus have to die? Was there not another way? Like if God wanted to deal with our sins, if God wanted to forgive us, did it have to involve death? Did it have to involve the death of his son? And if it did, did it have to be that kind of death? Did it have to be, I mean, crucifixion's hideous. Did it have to be like that? Why? That's, could, could Jesus not have done the same thing by dying peacefully in his sleep? If he'd done that, could, couldn't the same result have been achieved? Why crucifixion? Why so much suffering? They, these are hard questions, right? But they're good questions. They're good for us to ask. And they take us to the heart of this passage. This is what Isaiah 53 is all about. And the beauty of this passage is that it was written 800 years before Jesus, and yet it gives us one of the most stunning insights into what the death of Jesus accomplished. Think about that. 800 years before Jesus, eight centuries before Jesus ever walked the earth, Isaiah had never heard of Jesus of Nazareth. He'd never heard of crucifixion. But he is giving, he's pointing all the way forward to the, to the coming of the Messiah, to this one who is to come. And it's not the only passage in Isaiah like that. There's many passages, we call them messianic prophecies. They point towards the coming of this king, the coming of this Messiah, who is going to establish God's kingdom, who is going to reign on God's eternal throne as the son of David over God's kingdom forever and ever. But what is so unique about Isaiah 53 is that here we discover that this Messiah who's coming, He's not just going to be a Messiah who reigns. He's not just going to be a Messiah who rules. He's not just going to be a Messiah who serves. He is going to be a Messiah who suffers. And this is the bombshell that Isaiah is dropping at this point. This Messiah that we're expecting, this great king, he is going to be one who suffers. And his mission will be one of pain. And it will be anguish. And it will be agony. And it will be death. And so the way to Redemption and the way to the kingdom is going to be the way of suffering for this Messiah, for this servant. That's what we realize as we read this chapter. So this is a really important chapter in our Bibles. 
in, in two chapters, 52 and 53, for understanding the significance of the death of Jesus. That's an event that sits at the heart of your faith if you're a Christian. It's absolutely central. It's absolutely central to us as a church and to every Christian everywhere. But we often don't understand it as well as, as we should. And when we don't understand the death of Jesus well, then we fail to see its ongoing significance in our lives today. So I want us to think about this question, why did Jesus really have to die? As we dive in and look a bit more at what Isaiah says in chapter 53, okay? Let's dive in. Have a look a bit more closely here. Come back right up to verse, chapter 53, verse 14. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being and his form marred beyond human likeness. Can you hear what Isaiah is describing here? It's the physical pain, it's the physical brutality of what Jesus eventually would experience. Uh, on Friday night, I watched uh, The Passion of the Christ again, that movie, Mel Gibson movie. Um, I watched it on mute this time, just without the sound, just watching. And it is horrific. Uh, and and I, I still believe that it doesn't really come close to the actual brutality of crucifixion. I just don't think you could get a film into the country that did that. It would be too heavily censored. But that's probably as close as we can get to understanding. And just to see again what Jesus actually went through. Over about six hours, one Friday afternoon, this man was tortured to the extremity of any human suffering. The word the Gospels use is the word flogged. And what that means is probably first he was beaten with rods, just as a warm-up. And then he would have received the 39, the 39 lashes. And this was with the cat of nine tails, the whip. And at the end of the whip, you had pieces of glass, pieces of bone, so they would dig into the flesh as they whipped. And he got this 39 times, possibly, possibly more. And so his flesh was utterly shredded. He was beaten, he was spat upon, he was mocked and jeered. He had a crown of thorns which was pressed into his skull. He was forced to carry then his own cross as far as he could until someone else had to take over. And then they finally got to Golgotha and his arms were nailed Nails probably through his wrists, not his hand, but his wrists. And then probably one nail through both legs. And he was hung up on a cross and then left there in the baking sun to suffer and die. And crucifixion was thought of as the most extreme form of death that you could give someone and the most extreme form that would prolong the suffering. It was perfectly planned to draw out the suffering as long as it possibly could so that eventually, with crucifixion, you die of asphyxiation because you can't breathe. You've got to pull yourself up to breathe, to get air in your lungs. And every time you pull yourself up, it's excruciating. And eventually, you can't do it. And so you die of, of lack of oxygen. And as you consider that journey that Jesus went on, that we call it his passion his suffering. Isaiah says he was marred beyond any human recognition. His appearance was so disfigured by what he suffered, you wouldn't even recognize it was Jesus. His body so completely lacerated, his face so beaten and bloodied, that even people that knew him and had walked with him and journeyed with him would not have even recognized that this was Jesus, the man. I think but by the time he got to the cross and was hanging there, he would have looked more like a piece of meat. Than a, than a human being. You know, we, we have these nice oil paintings of the cross, don't we? Nice artwork. We wear the cross around our neck. And, we, and I understand that. And it's a symbol of our, our devotion to Jesus. But I tell you what, in the first century, no one was doing artwork of the cross. There's no artwork of the crucifixion. It was hideous. 
It was absolutely disgusting. Nobody turned that into an oil painting. It wasn't until several centuries later you start getting artwork depicting crucifixion. But it wasn't happening in the first century because of the revolting nature of what was going on. His appearance so bent and contorted and broken, you wouldn't even know it was, it was Jesus. And it wasn't just the physical suffering that Jesus endured. If you look a bit further down, jump down to chapter 53, verse 3. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. So what Isaiah is describing there is the humiliation of crucifixion. It wasn't just designed to be a physical event. It was designed to be something that utterly humiliated the person. They were stripped naked. Most of the time we see paintings or pictures of Jesus on the cross. He's got this nice loincloth on, conveniently covered. No, people were stripped naked. They lost all their dignity. They were utterly degraded, utterly debased. Crucifixion happened in a very public place. So that's why there there are people that pass by. It's like having crucifixion happen down in the Viaduct Basin. In a public place, people would just pass by and they would mock and they would laugh and they would spit and they would throw insults at Jesus. And all of this, the Romans knew exactly what they were doing. This was an instrument of shame. And from their perspective, it was a way of saying, don't mess with our power. Don't mess with this empire. If you think you can commit any sort of treason or disturb the peace, this is where you're going to end up. And it reduced people to absolutely nothing. This horrendous act of utterly humiliating the person so that he was despised. And we held him in low esteem, says Isaiah. Crucifixion is the worst form of execution that has ever been invented anywhere in the world. The worst form of torture, the worst form of death. And that is where Jesus landed. If he'd lived and died today, it might have been lethal injection or something like that. But no, he was in Rome in the first century in the Roman Empire. And so crucifixion was his lot. The most hideous, degrading, humiliating form of death you could possibly imagine. Now, why do do I say all that? I know some of you don't like gore and you're nervous and you're about to walk out because it's just too much and I apologize for that. But here's the thing. There's a reason that we've got to focus on this. Here's the question. Why is the suffering of Jesus important? If you read Isaiah 53, a lot of that chapter, it's not just the death of Jesus, it's the suffering. All of this language, very physical language, the suffering, the suffering, the anguish, the agony, crushed, wounded, pierced. Why is that important? Could Jesus have just died peacefully in his sleep and achieved the same result? If it was just death that was required, could it have been any form of death? And why did it have to be such an ugly form of death? Well, let me read you a quote by Fleming Rutledge, who's written a wonderful book called The Crucifixion. She says this, There is something sickening in human nature, and it corresponds precisely to the sickening aspects of crucifixion. The hideousness of the crucifixion summons us to put away sentimentality and face up to the ugliness that lies just under the surface. The scandal, the outrage of the cross is commensurate with the offense and ubiquity of sin. You see what she's saying? When you consider Jesus upon the cross, when you consider his suffering, when you look at that shame and that horrendous 
torture, do you know what you're seeing? A picture of your own sin. You are seeing a picture of just how hideous sin really is. That's the point. We have such a low regard for sin. We don't really understand or or consider what it is. We know that we're sinners, I think most of us. If you're a Christian, you probably understand. You're a sinner. You know that you do things wrong. We know that we sin against God. That's fine. We don't see it, though. We We don't see the true nature of sin. We don't get what sin really is. And God the Father knew that in order for sin to be dealt with, it first needed to be exposed. That we needed to be able to see something of the ugliness and the sickening nature of sin. And so he sent his own son to suffer and to die, to be tortured and executed on a cross so that we could see that act and we could see something of the ugliness that's in our own hearts. The hideousness of the crucifixion shows you the hideousness of sin. It's not just a a bland little mild offense that we commit. Sin is a vile, filthy thing that offends the heart of God. And it degrades us. And it damages us. And it corrupts us. And it contorts us. And it bends and twists and perverts our humanity out of shape. That's what sin's doing in your heart all the time. It is a hideous thing. And God wanted you to see what a hideous thing it is. And so he allowed his son to endure that agony. So that you would look at the cross and not look away. But look at the cross and see something of just how horrendous the problem of sin is. A problem that runs through every single human heart. That's why we can't look away. That's why hard as it is, gory as it is, gross though it is, we've got to keep our eyes fixed on the cross. And we've got to be able to see it in all of its grotesqueness. We've got to be able to wrestle with that. We can't sanitize it. We cannot airbrush it. Because if we do, we're sanitizing sin. If Jesus had died peacefully in his sleep, we would never have seen the true ugliness of our sin. Part of the purpose of how hideous that was is that so we would feel the gravity and the weight of what was actually being dealt with here and just how damaged our own nature is. So as you see and consider the crucifixion, see it as a mirror of the sin that exists in your heart and my heart. It's not easy to accept that, is it? Not easy to hear In a day where we are told that we are basically good and our nature is fundamentally good, the cross shows us something categorically different. So this is what Jesus had to suffer to show us the ugliness of our sin. But then, here is the heart of this passage. In verse 4, Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. One of the best verses in the Bible. Come on, anyone excited? Get a glory down there, Gary. Fantastic. This is is the good news, guys. So so for the, what was I saying? For the Jewish person looking at the crucifixion, looking at any crucifixion, they already had a category for that. And they understood crucifixion as a theological event in that the person who has been crucified is by definition cursed of God. That's how the Jewish person would have thought about it. They didn't believe it was just a human event. It wasn't just someone being punished by the Romans, but at a deeper level, that person is undergoing the judgment of God. They are being cursed by God. And they believed that because of their own scriptures that told them cursed is anyone who hung and hangs on a tree. 
And they took that to mean crucifixion. And therefore, by definition, anyone who's crucified is cursed of God. So if you're a Jewish person walking past the cross that day, you are thinking, there's a guy who's clearly done something to offend God. He's a blasphemer. He's an idolater. He's a completely unrighteous man. And I don't know what he's done, but God's not happy with him. And this is an act of God to judge that person. That is how the Jewish mind would have interpreted crucifixion. And Isaiah here, 800 years before all of that happened, is saying, you're right and you're wrong all at the same time and in a deeper way than you ever realized. You're right because crucifixion is an act of God. Right? We need to say that. Crucifixion is absolutely an act of God. It wasn't just a human thing that went on. Yes, Jesus was executed by Pontius Pilate. Yes, he was handed over by the Sanhedrin. But there's a lot more going on than just human people, human actors. This was the hand of God. The Bible's very clear. By the foreordained plan of God, he was handed over. This was an act of God. Like it or not, God orchestrated the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And Isaiah would say, not only is it an act of God, it was an act of punishment. Now, he uses that word several times in this chapter, the word punishment. Jesus was being punished for sin. That's true. But here is the almighty difference. He wasn't being punished for his own sin. He was being punished for ours. Jesus wasn't hanging and dying in order to atone for his own sin. He was suffering and dying to atone for our sin. He stood in our place. He took upon himself our sin. He bore the sin that we could not bear ourselves. He died the death we should have died. He took the judgment we should have taken. He became the curse we should have become. He was in our place as our substitute, as our representative that day. That's the heart of the cross. Now, that concept is what we call vicarious suffering. It means suffering in the place of another, suffering on behalf of another. And that, that concept's not entirely unknown to us, is it? I mean, we, we come across this. In fact, a lot of good stories that we tell, a lot of good movies that we watch have that sort of concept in it of someone suffering for someone else, someone sacrificing themselves for someone else. Just think about Think about Jack and Rose in Titanic. Good old Jack and Rose. Think about that final scene. And they're in the water. And Rose is, they're floating on that, whatever it is, a door or a piece of debris. And Jack sacrifices his place there so that Rose could, could float there and be safe. And Jack's in the water and, and he eventually drifts away and drowns. He sacrifices himself so that Rose can live. Now that we could say that is vicarious suffering. That's redemptive suffering. Suffering, dying, so that someone else can live, can benefit. And in some small way, that gives us a window into what the cross is all about. That there is this act of vicarious suffering at the heart of the cross. Not just someone suffering for themselves, someone suffering on behalf of others. But Titanic doesn't get us close to the true nature of what actually happened on the cross. No story no movie gets us close to that because something far, far deeper was going on on the cross. Jesus didn't just pay a debt that we should have paid. He didn't just bear a consequence or pay a sentence that we should have paid. When you get to the New Testament, you hear Paul saying things like, he became sin. 
Now just think about that for a minute. This is, this is a lot more than just sacrificing yourself for someone else. He became sin. Like I don't even understand the depth of that. As somehow in his own body, without becoming sinful, he became sin. He who knew no sin became sin. That Jesus internalized sin to such a degree within his flesh, within his body. It was an incredibly physical thing. In Galatians, Paul says he became a curse. So the curse that Israel had brought upon themselves for their disobedience to the law, Jesus became that curse. Didn't just do a nice thing, didn't just pay a price, didn't just clear a debt. No, he became a curse within his own body. In that sense, he was a cursed man hanging on the cross, but he wasn't paying for his own disobedience. He was taking the judgment of Israel and all humanity. So Jesus in his flesh absorbed our sin. He absorbed all of our failure. He absorbed all of your failure, every single thing that you've ever done that has dishonored God, even all those things you've got no idea about. You think you can count them. You've got no idea. The things we've thought, the things we've said, the attitudes we've held, the actions we've taken, the sins of commission that we've done, the sins of omission, things that we should have done that we haven't done, probably even never realized we should have done, and yet they are sin in God's eyes. The weight of sin is far greater than we could ever imagine, and yet Jesus carried it all within his body on the cross. Not just yours, but the person sitting next to you as well, and the person sitting next to them. All of us, every single human being, throughout history and around the world, whether or not they ever acknowledge Jesus or bow the knee to him, he carried their sin on the cross and he carried it to the grave. And he did that so that this last phrase that Isaiah writes in that verse could be true. At the end of verse 5, that beautiful phrase, and by his wounds we are healed. So that through Jesus' suffering and death, we could receive life. Because he has carried our sin, you no longer have to carry it. Because he's taken the judgment of God, you no longer have to stand under that judgment. Because the wrath of God has been totally poured out upon the one innocent Son of God, you no longer have to be an object of God's wrath. You no longer have to have the wrath of God poured out upon you. Because Jesus has become a curse, you don't have to bear that curse anymore. Because Jesus has died, you don't have to die. Because Jesus was God forsaken on the cross, you never have to be God forsaken. You can claim the promise that God will never leave you and he will never forsake you. Because Jesus died, you can be eternally with God in his kingdom. By the wounds that he suffered, by the flesh torn from his back, you can be redeemed and reconciled to God. That's the good news at the heart of the gospel. That's the good news at the heart of our faith. By his wounds, we are healed from sin and we no longer stand under shame. We no longer stand under guilt. We might feel shame sometimes, but Jesus has lifted that and he's carried that so that we could be free and there could be a way back to the Father for us and we could be reunited to God. There's no other religion that has this. There's no other belief system like this. This is utterly unique. Do you realize that? Within Islam, the idea that Allah would, would suffer vicariously for his people like this. This is just not something Allah would do. It would be blasphemous to suggest that within Islam. Within Hinduism, you have the idea of reincarnation. We're constantly atoning for sin ourselves because we're always paying it off from the previous life. Karma, right? And yet the cross puts an end to all that. 
The cross says you can, never, you can never pay off that sin debt. You can never do it, so stop trying. Someone has already done it. And he did it on a Friday afternoon, hanging on a cross in six hours of agony. He has paid that debt so you could be free, so the chain could be broken, so your sin could be broken, so there could be a new life, a new freedom for you. Only the Christian message has this, this beautiful truth, and it is the truth at the heart of it, that our God has suffered and died for us. And we need to refuse to take that for granted or let it become familiar and blase. And then the story's not ended there. Isaiah keeps going. He's got one more movement in the story to tell us about. Jump right down to verse 11. He says, after he has suffered, that's talking ultimately about Jesus, after he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many. What do you think he's talking about when he says he will see the light of life? Resurrection, right? So here we're pointing forward that the crucifixion wasn't the end of the story. But on the third day, Jesus walked out of the tomb. And the resurrection makes sense of the crucifixion. Because you think about it, if we just had the crucifixion, it would be a totally different story. The disciples of Jesus did not walk away after Jesus' crucifixion thinking, that's amazing, Jesus has paid for our sins. Hallelujah. They, they didn't understand any of this. They walked away thinking it was complete failure. They walked away depressed and dejected and discouraged that day because the rabbi they'd been following had just gone through a hideous torture and execution. And as far as they knew, that meant that he'd failed. The, the kingdom had come to nothing. He was just another wannabe Messiah who had been killed by the Romans. That's, that's all it was. Better go back to our fishing. That's where they landed. That's what Good Friday looked like for them. That's what Good Saturday looked like for them. It wasn't good at all. Only once Jesus was resurrected did things then start to make sense for the disciples. That was the turning point. That's when they began to realize, hang on a minute. This guy is exactly who he said he was. He is the son of God. He wasn't just another rabbi at all. All these things that he talked about of being one with the Father, and if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, that was, that was true, that was for real. And the, the death that he died, that was for me. There was a sacrifice that was happening there that's been accepted by the Father, and that now means that I can be freed and, and forgiven permanently for my, for my sin. All of this only made sense in view of the resurrection. So we've got to hold those two things together. You can never have the crucifixion without the resurrection and never the resurrection without the crucifixion. They belong together. It's the dying and the rising of Christ that makes sense of our salvation. He's died for our sins and he's risen again to bring us new life or as Isaiah says, to justify. That means to make us righteous. We receive this incredible gift of righteousness now because Jesus, the righteous one, died for our unrighteousness. So we could receive the gift of being united with God, even though we don't deserve it. The resurrection interprets the crucifixion, and we've got to keep both of those things together. So as you step back from all this, I'm trying to build a picture for you, and we're not going through every verse in Isaiah 53, but just step back for a minute and take it in. It's heavy, isn't it? It's heavy stuff, and there's heavy language in here. But I think in view of it all, there's a couple of, couple of old, old hymns that come to mind. One is the second verse of that hymn that says, My sin, oh the bliss of that glorious thought, my sin, not in part, 
but the whole is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O oh my soul. I love that thought. My sin, not part of it, not a little bit of it, the whole thing is nailed to the cross and I don't have to bear it anymore. Some of you maybe still feel like you're struggling under the weight of your own sin, like you're still carrying it. Even as a Christian, you still feel like you're carrying it all. You're weighed down by it. We can feel that way sometimes, can't we? We need to come back to the reality of the final three words Jesus said on the cross. It is finished. It's finished. It's done. He's paid for it. All of your striving and trying and failing and fearing and being guilty and ashamed, it's all finished. Because he has paid it and he's carried it so you no longer have to. And I think of that hymn that we sung earlier on, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross on which the Prince of Glory died. My richest gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. That's, that's our response, I think. That's what our response should be to the cross, is to pour contempt on our own pride. Our own pride that would ever think we were deserving of this. Our own pride that would ever think there was something we could bring that we could contribute, we think that sometimes, don't we? There must be something I can do, some way I can help. If I can posture myself a little bit, it'll help God to love me a little bit more, make myself slightly more acceptable to God. Listen, you'll never be any more acceptable to God than you are right now. There's nothing that we can do. We don't bring anything. All we can do is receive it. And so we need to pour contempt on the pride that convinces us we can add something. We can't. All we can do is receive. And then we say, my richest gain I count as loss. There's nothing else that comes close to this. And that's a commitment to say, I will never let anything else ever come in the way of this precious, precious gift that I've received through Jesus. I'm never going to take it for granted again. I'm never going to come up and take communion again and think it's some light thing, some trivial thing. Yes, it's free for you. It, you are freely pardoned. But never forget what it cost. Never forget what it cost, Jesus in a very physical, earthy sense, to purchase the salvation that you now enjoy. That's not to make you feel guilty at all. It's to remove guilt, but it's to appreciate the price that has been paid. And so we say, whatever else I've achieved in my life, it doesn't compare to this. Whatever else I think of what's going on, any accolades, any achievement, anything I'll do in my life, nothing will come close to this. We say with Paul, my, what did he say? Everything else I consider garbage. Whatever else I've achieved, I consider garbage for the sake of knowing Christ. I want to know him in his death. I want to know him in his resurrection. That's all it's about, is knowing Jesus. And the one who has died and the one who has risen is also the one who's here. And he stands here with us today. And you can picture him. He's in, he's in heaven, but he's here by his spirit. And you can picture him standing here, just like he stood before his disciples with the nail scars in his hands. You remember that story in the Gospels? And remember Thomas, who didn't believe, wasn't sure. He said, I'm not going to believe until I see the nail scars. So Jesus holds out his hand. And he says, come and, come and put your finger here, Thomas. Come and feel these scars. And Thomas walks over and touches the flesh of Jesus, which still has the nail scars in it. And he says, my Lord and my God. And I pray that as we, in a way, are able to come to Jesus and, 
and touch those scars today. We can't do it physically, but in our minds and hearts, to connect with him, to feel those nail-pierced wrists that we might say with Thomas, my Lord and my God, I never knew. I never knew. And we still don't know, and we never will, what it truly, truly cost. But we can pray that God would open our eyes a little bit more so that we'd appreciate the weight of our salvation. Can we pray? So Jesus, just in the quietness of this moment, I want to pray for each of us in this room that you would open our eyes in this moment to see your suffering. I feel, I feel a bit strange even asking that, God. I'm not sure if I should be asking that, but I just, I just feel prompted to ask you, God, that you would just show us your suffering. Just, Jesus, would you open our eyes a little bit more to see how much you suffered for us because we just don't get it. And I think my life would be different if I really knew. I think our lives would be different if we really knew. Jesus, would you show us the depths of what you endured and the extremes that you've gone to. And as we see that, God, would you just do something in our heart that we, we, can, feel, we can feel the ugliness of sin. But then in the same breath, Lord Jesus, we want you to show us again the, the amazing gift of salvation so that we're not left in our sins. Lord, I don't want anyone in here to just come away feeling just the weight of their sin without also feeling the weight of salvation and feeling that sin lifted from them because of what you've done, Jesus. And so we just ask you for a fresh revelation of your grace. But just show us, show us the cross, Jesus. Not the nice, tidy version that's in our mind eye, but, but the, the ugliness and the humiliation because that's where our salvation lies and that's how our salvation was purchased. Jesus, we want to ask that from this day forward, you would help us never, ever to tread lightly upon the ground at the foot of the cross, but always to, to, to seek to appreciate and to be still and recognize the gravity and the weightiness of what you have done for us. In Jesus' name, amen. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources, or to donate to our teaching resource ministry, or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.